Look at verse 45 and 46. Luke chapter 19, verse 45. Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling, saying to them, it is written, and my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a robber's den. Now, last week we began uh, what is really the beginning of the end in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, last week we started with the triumphal entry of Jesus. And I say that that's the beginning of the end because really Luke is focusing uh, the, these last chapters, the end of 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, all on one week of Jesus's life and ministry. And this is not unique to Luke, but other gospel writers give a disproportionate amount of time to the final week. And the reason for that is because the gospels are not really simply biographical books like we would read today about famous uh, politicians or famous athletes. Uh, but rather here, the Gospels have a special message for us. And that message is about the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The most significant part of the ministry of Jesus is to be found at the conclusion of his three years. And that is, of course, the surrendering of himself to the cross. That is the most significant work. Now, boys and girls, it's important for you to understand that Jesus is a good man. He's a good teacher. But the most significant thing that you need to know about the Lord Jesus Christ is that Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And he saves sinners by dying on the cross and being raised bodily from the dead on the third day, according to the scriptures. And so the gospel writers take uh maybe an inordinate amount of space and ink uh, to focus on this work of Jesus Christ. Now, this tells us something by way of application. Namely, this is what we often should major on when we think of what is most important in the Christian life, that we would focus chiefly on Jesus, his life, his death and resurrection. This is our focus as well. This should be our focus. This should be always the focus of the church. No matter what subjects we're preaching on, no matter what books, no matter what themes we're exploring together in the Bible, we always want to bring it back to the theme whenever possible without doing any, uh, you know, hermeneutical gymnastics uh, to Christ and his cross. We want to move uh, towards that focal point. This is what the Apostle Paul said about his own ministry. I preach Christ and him crucified. This is what the church should be about. Um, unfortunately, the church many times moves away from the centrality of the cross and can get into other things, even hobby horses. Ministers, yes, we have our hobby horses that we like to talk about. But the, the cross must always be the central focus, along with the resurrection. This is why... We celebrate the Lord's Supper weekly in the evening service so that the Lord's Day is always brought to a conclusion with us focusing on the brokenness of Jesus in the bread and the spilled blood of Christ in the cup. That we always would be drawn back to that, that our faith would be nourished on Christ and him crucified. So last week we saw Jesus Christ coming into Jerusalem in the in what commonly called is, is the 
triumphal entry. And we saw that Jesus came as a prophet king, uh, prophesying about the donkey, prophesying over Jerusalem, what would occur, the tragedy that would occur to Jerusalem because of their rejection of Christ. We saw him come, secondly, as a servant king, a servant king. And then thirdly, as a weeping king, one who uh, was a man of uh, sorrows, acquainted with grief and longed to gather his people, but they were unwilling. Now, today we now focus on the cleansing of the temple. Now, Luke's account is shorter than the other gospel writers. Luke really summarizes it here just in two verses. You see that in verse 45 and 46, Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a robber's den. I want to take these two verses and give us two thoughts. Number one, I want us to focus on the cleansing of the temple. What is the significance of that? And then number two, I'd like us to focus on the words of Christ that his father's house should be a house of prayer. And the significance of that, the significance of the cleansing of the temple and also that the temple should be a place of prayer. Now, this is the week of Passover. Uh, Passover was established back in Exodus chapter 12. It has historic ties to the Exodus where the people of God uh, under the leadership of Moses were awaiting their final deliverance out of the bondage of slavery again. It is a type of deliverance that Jesus Christ brings us here. You remember that the children of Israel were slaves in Egypt and God had been bringing about uh, tremendous plagues, mostly judgments of nature upon Egypt. But the last one, the last and most terrible of the plagues would be the death of the firstborn throughout Egypt and that that the people of God were to, at twilight, take a lamb and they were to slaughter that lamb, boys and girls, and they were to put the blood on the door lentils or what we today might call the door jam and around the door. And wherever the spirit of the Lord saw the blood of the lamb, he would pass over. That's where we get the name Passover. He would pass over that home. He would not bring the judgment of that final plague upon any home that was under the blood. This, of course, I think should be clear to us that here the scriptures were giving us a typology, a type of the work of Jesus Christ, that Christ covers our families. Christ covers our homes by his shed blood. The, you know, the Philippian jailer was told by the Apostle Paul, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved alone. Is that what he said? No. But is that what most evangelicals hear today? Yes. Believe on Jesus and you will be saved. You singular. Paul didn't say that. Paul said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and y'all will be saved. It's in the Greek. <laughs> he said, you and your family will be saved. You and your family will be under the blood of Christ. And you will be protected from the judgment of God's final wrath and judgment. If you, Philippian jailer, will come, you, singular, will come under the blood of Christ. And the Philippian jailer brings him home and binds up his wounds. And Paul baptizes the whole household of the Philippian jailer. So 
the Passover was instituted to point the, the children of Israel to the future work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And so God brought a judgment on Egypt and he destroys the firstborn of all those families whereby there's no blood of the lamb on the door jam. And ever since then, such as in Deuteronomy chapter 16, verses 1 through 6, the people of God were to observe and commemorate that night. Just as the Lord's table commemorates the final night of Jesus's life when he's in the upper room and he breaks the bread and he says, this is my body. And when he takes the cup and he says, in this cup is my blood. We, we commemorate that final night. We commemorate the final day of Jesus as Jesus goes to the cross and dies on the cross. Jesus being the Lamb of God who sacrifices himself for the sins of his people. The, the children of Israel were to commemorate the Passover. Now, I'm saying all this because I want you to see the context for the cleansing of the temple. This is the week in which Jesus performs this mighty act. It may even be a miracle when you consider that one man could drive out hundreds, if not thousands, of people and animals by himself. And that this took time to do so. You know, I used to think of the cleansing of a temple when I was a new Christian, just a couple minutes, everybody's out, you know. But actually, I think there's so many people in the court of the Gentiles, so many hundreds, thousands of animals that that it demonstrates the authority of Christ. You know, some of the other gospel writers, they some of the commentaries point out, they ask Jesus, by what authority do you do this? And the authority is clear in the cleansing itself. That the, the divine approbation is on Christ as he does this. So. William Hendrickson, the great reformed uh, commentator, notes the elements of the Passover. He says that there would be a prayer of thanksgiving by the head of the household. There would be the drinking of the first cup of wine. There would be eating of bitter herbs, secondly. Then third, the son, who had to be at least 12 years old, which I think tends to speak against Pado communion, but that's another sermon. The son had to inquire at the table what are what are we doing here tonight? That was part of the ritual. You know, why are we doing this? There would be the singing of the first part of the Hillel, Psalms 113 and 114, the washing of hands, the carving, the eating of the lamb with unleavened bread, according to Exodus 12 and 13. There would be the continuation of the meal. <coughs> but they had to eat that lamb last. And then there would be the singing of the second part of the Hillel, the Psalms 115 to 118. Now, the day on which the lamb was killed was followed by seven days, a seven day feast of unleavened bread. Sometimes the word Passover is used to cover both celebrations, given the proximity of them, says Hendrickson. But here's the point that Jesus is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He has entered into Jerusalem where thousands of lambs. Typologically are being slaughtered to remind the people, to remind Jerusalem of what Jesus is about to do for them. And in that temple, he sees what? He sees men selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and he sees tables of money changers sitting there. 
all of this taking place, we believe, in the court of the Gentiles that had been changed into a virtual stockyard. You know, that says something else about the hardness of their hearts. The court of the Gentiles was the only place where non-Israelites could stand and worship the Lord at the temple. And what does it say when you tell human beings of other ethnicities and other nations they may not come into the temple on one of the holiest weeks in the liturgical calendar of the Old Testament because they're selling animals and changing money. Their hearts had become so hard they didn't care about the nations anymore. They didn't care about evangelism. They didn't care about missions. Friends, if, if you are losing zeal for evangelism, if you're losing zeal for missions, you need to cleanse your temple. You need to drive out the money changers in your own heart. I don't want to overly spiritualize this. I'm saying this by way of application. But there is, I think, a point here in the text. They allowed missions and evangelism to be put outside of the temple where it was supposed to be. God had designated an entire giant courtyard for foreigners to hear the word of God and to see the sacrifices Albeit not as closely as the Jews. The gospel is for the Jew first. And then for the Greek. And then for the Gentile. For you and me. Friends, if, if, we, don't, if we lose a zeal for missions, for reformation of the church, for the multiplication of churches, for the planting of new churches, for the sending of more missionaries, the opening of new fields. Friends, we've got to do a check on ourselves. We need to ask Jesus to come into our hearts and cleanse our hearts a bit. That we would make room for missions and evangelism in our life again. But that's the state of the church in Jesus's day. There is a correlation to the hardness of their hearts and the reason they're going to reject Jesus and crucify him. And so William Hendrickson, to borrow from Hendrickson yet again, he says that Jesus sees the court of the Gentiles. It's been changed into a virtual stockyard. It's full of stench, filth from the defecation of animals, the bleating, the, 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 the noise of all these animals mooing, etc. Blocking out the Gentiles, Jesus goes into this temple now, why, why were they there? Well, the worshiper could bring his own animal. That the law did permit. But it wasn't always easy, especially if you live, you know, is, uh, way up in the north in the region of Dan or, or way down south in Beersheba. Difficult sometimes, or especially if you were a Gentile coming from even a greater distance. And so what they would do is that they would uh, sell animals here at the temple now, you could bring an animal, but it might not be approved. See, that's, the, that's part of the gig here. The, the temple priests get to say whether that animal is good enough or not. And lo and behold, probably some were not good enough. And then what do you do? 
Well, you got to buy a new animal. You got to find a new. Animal. Oh well, we just happen to have some right over here. You know, kind of like you do when you bring your car in to get service. Oh, you know, we got some other cars over here you might want to look at. You know, while you're getting your oil changed and your tires rotated. Uh, so they they they, they got a kind of a scam going on here. They could sell the animals for a higher price because they got a lock on the market. You got to get a priest approved animal. They're the ones who approve them. Um, You've got demand. People coming from great distances need animals to sacrifice. And you might show up, especially if you came from afar, whether you were a Jew living abroad in the diaspora or whether you were a Gentile. You often probably had foreign currency on you, Roman currency, Greek currency, and you had to exchange it for Jewish coins because only Jewish coins were accepted at the temple. And probably no surprise, there's a fee for this exchange. A way to make more money. So Jesus is saying that they had taken (coughs) the Lord's house and they really had turned it into a marketplace. Jesus says it's. A den of thieves. And here he's really citing from Isaiah chapter 56, verse 7. <coughs> Isaiah says here in Isaiah 56, 7, even those I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer, their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all the peoples. And Jesus is saying this is what the house should have been. So what does he do? Well, Luke has a very short account, but the other gospel writers tell us a little bit more what Jesus did. We're told, for example, Jesus made a scourge of cords. And. uh, And drove out the animals and the men. Now, why did he do this? First of all, I want you to note here, we need to have a right understanding of. The person of Jesus and his humanity. I, I, I do not encourage you to watch movies where there is a representation of Jesus bodily in those films. That would be your pastor recommending you not. The reason for that is there is no actor who can perfectly convey the, the perfect sinless humanity of Jesus. So any portrayal of Jesus is a distortion of the God man by nature. The other reason is the Bible says thou shalt not make graven images uh, of God, including, I believe, the person of Christ. Um, having said that, Jesus is often portrayed um, as this in different ways, but sometimes he's portrayed as this very, very, very meek guy to the point. Where he only speaks in, you know, above a little bit above a whisper and and he's almost kind of like a hippie figure. And and I want to challenge that if that's your view of, of Christ, I want you to I want to challenge you right now with this scene. <laughs> that that this took a man who is developed, built, strong, could shout to be heard over multitudes of people outdoors without the microphone. Who could yell that the cattle would be startled and want to go somewhere away from the scary noise? That he was strong to make a whip 
that it worked. That, that people and animals were afraid of Jesus and, and they left in droves out of this courtyard. This is a 30 year old man who had been a carpenter all his life. He has been lifting wood, heavy tools. This is a man who's in shape. He has a peripatetic ministry it means it's just a big fancy word saying he walks everywhere he goes teaching. This is, this is a guy who has endurance. This is a man who is strong in, in his humanity. And he drives them out. It's probably one of the scariest scenes that we ever see Jesus in. Because Jesus is, I don't want to misrepresent it, he is meek. He is gentle. He is mild. It, it's meek, mild, and gentle guys when they get angry that are really fearful. A guy who gets angry all the time um, is, is not all that scary. Because he, you're used to it. It's when somebody who is not known for being full of wrath becomes wrathful that you see the terribleness of it all the more. So Jesus drives out of this, the, all the sheep, oxen. Oxen are not small animals. He overturns the tables. He pours out the coins of the money changers. Uh, this, is, this is a man who is creating great disruption in, in the midst of, of this sin in the, in the courtyard. And no doubt it is drawing a crowd of onlookers who are watching this. Jesus elsewhere in the gospel says, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a house a merchandise. Again, Luke doesn't give us those words, but others do. Companion gospel writers do. What is Christ doing? He's speaking about the corruption of the temple. Rather than being a place of, of worship, a place of prayer, a place where the gospel is made known, it's become a place to do business. It's a place to take profits. And so what is Christ doing? Well, he's exercising his authority as the son of the father, as the only begotten son of the heavenly father. Notice here that Jesus calls in verse 46, the house, my house. Other gospel writers have him saying, my father's house. It's not our house. It's not our father's house. It's my house, says Jesus. Jesus demonstrates that this is the place where God dwells and Christ, being fully God, has a claim and an authority to this house that no other human being has. Now, the reason, boys and girls, this is so significant, and I want you to appreciate this, is because by allowing this temple to be distorted by the selling of the animals and the money changing, etc., they were saying something about Jesus that was not true. The temple, you have to understand, this, the, the, what is the most significant thing about the temple? I think Jesus tells us the most significant thing about the temple. When he said elsewhere, tear this temple down, tear this building down, and I will rebuild it in three days. What Jesus is saying is that he is the fulfillment of the significance of the temple. The temple 
was to stand until Christ came. It was it was to point the people to the incarnation. God no longer need dwell in the Holy of Holies behind the curtain in the inner room of this building anywhere, because why? God is dwelling among men in Jesus Christ. The distortion, though, of the temple was saying something of Jesus that was untrue, that Jesus was not himself holy. That Jesus himself was unrighteous. And so the cleansing of the temple to restore it to its purity was important because it was to restore the people's understanding of the temple itself. It was God's house. And now God has come in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Some have quoted from uh, Jesus citing Psalm 69, 9, zeal for thy house will consume me. Now, let me make a couple applications here about the cleansing of the temple. And then I want to talk quickly about prayer. Number one, Jesus's cleansing of the temple should remind us that God is holy. I think there's a tendency even among us who are Christians to forget the holiness of God because we are protected by the blood of Christ. Sometimes we even can approach God irreverently. But the Lord is to be revered as holy. They had corrupted the image of God by corrupting the worship of God. And we do the same. The reason worship is so important, the reason that there needs to be such care taken as to what we do in worship is because it it speaks to who God himself is. And that there should be captured, I think, rightly, a sense of what's going on in Revelation chapter four and Revelation chapter five in heaven. What is going on in four and five of Revelation? It's, it, it's the couple scenes where the curtain of heaven comes back and John shows us something of the worship of God in heaven. And what we do on the Lord's Day, when we come together in the name of Jesus Christ, we are coming into that heavenly worship, even though bodily we're still here. And the reason we have to be so careful as to the elements of worship, what we do and what we don't do, is because God is the one who gets the prerogative of determining what and how he shall be worshipped, what shall be done in worship and how he will be worshipped. And that the worship is, is to convey both in what is done and the manner in which it's done. A sense of the holiness of God. The elders in Revelation 4 are prostrate before the throne of God. The angels are crying with their eyes covered by their wings in the presence of God. Because even as sinless creatures, they dare not look upon the very being of God himself. There, there is a sense of awe. There is a, a sense of majesty as you hear the peals of thunder. You see the emerald rainbow. You see the great white throne. You see the crystal sea before the throne. There is a sense of glory, of majesty, power, dominion given unto God and to the Lamb of God who sits at his right hand. What we do on the Lord's Day is we are seeking, albeit imperfectly, to capture something of what's going on perfectly in heaven. 
that we would come in and we would honor God and treat him with holiness. Number two. I've already mentioned this, but let's mention it again. In this scene, we also see Jesus's zeal for not only for the purity of God's worship, but for evangelistic and missionary outreach. The two go hand in hand, right worship and a zeal for missions. The animals were crowding out the place where non-Jews could come and worship. The Jews had perverted the courtyard's use and they were only concerned with themselves. And it didn't seem to matter if foreigners or non-believers were shut out by a stockyard of animals. This is where we need to be careful that we do not become spiritually corrupt and complacent to care only about ourselves and our own families and our own people to the exclusion of missionary concern for the modern Gentile. People who live in the world who don't know God and don't have a Bible. Now, I need to move on and I'm going to speak more briefly here, just where Jesus says "And my house shall be a house of prayer. I want you to see also that the Lord Jesus Christ tells us that the temple was to be a place of worship, of prayer. You know, Colossians chapter four, verse two tells us in the New Testament, even though the, the temple is gone, but the Bible tells us in the New Testament we are still to be devoted to prayer. This is an element of worship that we have in connection with the old covenant and that we are to be a kingdom of priests. What does that mean? A kingdom of priests, we are told. It means that now we do not have a priesthood invested in one tribe in the church. The priesthood is not invested in one family of the church. The priesthood through Jesus Christ has been distributed to every member. The spirit being given to those who love the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we are all priests. Before the Lord, offering sacrifices of thanksgiving and praise, not not atoning sacrifices, but sacrifices that acknowledge the atonement of Jesus Christ on our behalf. And that we are to be worshipers of God. We are to be worshipers. You know, boys and girls, that's important for you to understand, even at a young age, we come here to worship the Lord. It's this is not a university and this is not a lecture. We're not here simply to stuff our mind. We are here to worship God. We are here to allow the word of God to do its work in our lives and to respond to that word uh, through prayer and praise of God. Jesus told the woman at the well that she was a Samaritan and she was saying, you know, you Jews, you think you need to worship in Jerusalem. And we Samaritans, we think we should worship at this mountain. And you remember in John chapter four that Jesus told the woman that it will be the day will come. And now is, he said, when it will not be on this mountain of yours or on our mountain in Jerusalem, but that those who worship the father will worship him in spirit and truth. Those that the father seeks. And here you see who the seeker really is. It's not us. It's the father. And who's the father seeking? He's seeking those who will worship. 
People who will devote themselves to prayer. People who will praise God. People who will bow down and love him, serve him, enjoy him, praise him. Are you a worshiper of God? The only way you can come to be a worshiper of the Lord is by coming to know the Son of the Father, Jesus Christ, as he's portrayed even here in these two verses before us here. We come to the Father through the Son. No one comes to the Father but by the Son. And you may not have the Father unless you take the Son. He who believes on the Son, he who has seen the Son by faith has seen the Father. And the Father will receive your worship. You know, that's, that is one of the wonderful things, I think, about the work of Jesus Christ. Is that we come and we worship him. And that the Father accepts the worship of Covenant Presbyterian Church. Why does God not just burn us all up? Who here worshiped perfectly? Who here kept his mind on every stanza of every song we sang? Why should God accept that? Because the worship here has been sprinkled with the blood of Christ. Jesus has atoned even for our prayers and our worship. That's what makes it acceptable. And you see, that's why we can't come in our own strength or our own merit. We have to come only by the merits and the work and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. But that's what makes the worship acceptable to the Father. Let's pray together.